My guest today is Rachel Joy Welcher. She is the author of a couple of books of poetry, A Blue Tarp and Two Funerals Then Easter, and most recently, Talking Back to Purity Culture, which will sort of uh, frame our conversation today. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk. It's great to be here. To start with, why don't we just uh, begin by defining purity culture? I think that you know a lot of us, perhaps the listener, has a, a basic idea of, of what it is, but, but what, what's our target here? How, how would you define purity culture? Right. That's a good place to start. I mean, there have been versions of a purity culture in different generations, but my focus is on this kind of fear response coming out of the 70s and 80s, a fear of STDs, HIV and teen pregnancy. And so sort of the Christian subculture that formed after that, um, where it was defined by making these pledges specifically toward saving sex for marriage. So abstinence. So purity could include more than that, but the main focus was don't have sex until you're married. Um, so, you know, there were conferences, there were purity rings, and there were so many books written um, the other way that I would define purity culture was a series of um, rules that were rewarded by promises. So if you save sex for marriage, you won't have the regrets that people who don't do, um, you won't get, you know, you won't have teen pregnancy, you won't get any STDs, you will get married at a nice age, you will have great sex from night one, and um, you will have children with ease. That's actually a direct quote. You will have children with ease if you save sex for marriage. It's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there just in the definition. Right, right. So maybe just as a way of, I, I want to come back to those sort of promises, right? And like yes. the, the, the carrots that are held out right. in, in purity culture. Because uh, I think it's significant that none of it has to do so much with, say, living out, uh, living one's life in a way that's consistent with a particular biblical ethic of sexuality because it's good for you at the moment, right? <laughs> but because of the, these uh, future problems. So I, I definitely want to come back to that. Okay. Um, but, but just by way of sort of uh, putting out another stake to frame out the conversation, how do you think that this purity culture with, uh, you know, various promises and so on, uh, how do you think it, it shows up in the ways that Christians, often well-meaning Christians, mm. alienate singles and those struggling with infertility, among others, but those are two sort of big groups. Yeah, how, how does that show up there? I mean, that's a great question um, because as I was reading these books, so I, what I did was I went back and I reread the books I had read it as a teenager on dating and purity, and there really was no place for lifelong singles or the infertile. I mean, not only were they not even mentioned as an option, whereas you and I know that in church history, singleness and celibacy were a very respectable option, right? But in our, in today's evangelicalism, um, the idea that you would stay single is kind of treated as a problem to fix. So singles in church will say that instead of people saying, you know, um, tell me about your career or, you know, what you're doing for ministry, people will just ask them about their dating life and when they're going to get married, um, fixating on this idea that until you get married, you're not quite complete or you're not, you haven't arrived. Um, I've even heard singles say that they are treated as less spiritually mature 
as though marriage is some kind of ticket <laughs> to spiritual maturity, which, you know, you and I are both married. Um, we know that's not true. I mean, there's definitely wisdom that comes from it, but um, it's not what makes us better Christians. I think in the same way, um, childlessness is viewed as selfish. So even without understanding a person's reasons or experience, um, trials, people tend to, in church tend to view childless couples as well. They just don't want to sacrifice <laughs> when really, um, they might have made that choice, which is perfectly legitimate, or maybe they can't have children or they're struggling. Um, and so again, it's a problem to be fixed. Like, when are you going to have children? Um, how can we help you make this happen? If you can't have children, when are you going to adopt, etc.? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's startling to me and Melissa whenever, you know, we were married for a number of years before we uh, had our first child. And it was always startling when people would ask us, like, when are you going to have kids? Because we know so many people who have struggled with infertility in various ways. And, and we're just like, <laughs> like, what are you, how is it just, just like not even close friends? You know, it's like just making conversation. Right. Without having even given a thought to the fact that that might be a wound, like an open wound in someone's life. Yeah. It's happened to me too. And, um, you know, I've, I've been through, let's see, I'm pregnant now with our first child, but I, we lost three, um, before this one and people have been gracious and kind, but still there's been sort of this like, okay, well, what can we do to fix your problem? Which in some ways is just compassion. Okay. You can see that we want a child, but, um, rather than sort of just sitting with us in the dust, right? Um, saying, people have basically, they promised me, you will get pregnant and it will stick. Um, and it looks like maybe God is answering that prayer, but even to, every time someone said that to me, I knew they were trying to be kind, but I also knew that they can't make a promise like that, right? Because uh, being a godly Christian does not mean that we get all the things here on earth that we want. And there are plenty of godly Christians who can't have children. So when people said, you will have a baby, I just kind of thought, oh man, that's, that could really wound someone who then goes on to not have a child. Yeah. It's, it's like the, um, this, it's part of this whole mindset that orients Christian life toward uh, prosperity and fulfillment yep. toward this sort of using air quotes, like ideal, right? right? And that that is the culmination of a Christian life well-lived. Right. And it's interesting to think, when did that start? Because, you know, when we think about Jesus, right, he was single and childless. And so when did we decide that the definition of a full Christian life had to include marriage and had to include children? I'm not sure. But at some point the evangelical church has made an idol of the kind of nuclear, nuclear family. Yeah. I, I, I wonder how much of that has to do with the, the kind of commingling of mm. Christian theology mm. and uh, ideals about the American dream. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good connection. I think that we don't realize that we have, 
sort of bought into the American dream and, and mixed it into our theology that way. Um, and it takes just a second to think about our heroes of the faith and how many of them were single and celibate and childless and, and to look back on that and say, okay, if we met them in church today, would we try to fix them <laughs> or would we let them pursue that vibrant ministry that they had? I mean, Amy Carmichael is one of my heroes and she was the mother to so many children that she saved from temple prostitution, but she never had biological children. And from what I know and have read, she, um, turned down at least, I think two marriage proposals and, you know, people in church today might say, well, you're just too picky or, you know, what are you doing with your life? And yet she is, she was one of the, you know, most amazing missionaries in our history. So it's interesting to think about. <laughs> I've noticed that folks in, I'll just say, in, that are roughly my age, uh, uh, I'll say in my generation, mm -hmm. um, at least in my experience, tend to be more sensitive about the kinds of questions we ask people right. we don't know, <laughs> right. uh, you know, or, or trying to fix people, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, that occasions, a, I guess, maybe a, a couple of observations. I don't know. I, it's more speculation than observation, I guess. But it seems like, I, I guess, because of our sort of common experiences, be, be they economic uh, or the ease with which we communicate over social media and so on, we just, we, we seem to understand on, a, on an intuitive level, right, mm -hmm. that this certain kind of ideal is not the norm, right. whether because it's happened to us or plenty of people we know about uh, be right. because of, of communication. And mm -hmm. so I guess the two observations would be this. It seems like folks in previous generations were more bought into this kind of ideal as yep. normative. Right. And then I have to think that, you know, it's, it's not like people who have struggles um, just sort of emerged 20 years ago. I mean, there were always people who were right. struggling, always people... Right. who struggle with infertility or um, were single because they wanted to be single or were, were single despite the fact they didn't want to be signal, uh, single, right. um, all of these things. And they must have felt even more marginalized. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way. Or you just kind of have to put on a happy face, right? Because right. The old, I've noticed that the older generation too, um, in their attempt to comfort someone who's going through loss or unwanted singleness, um, they'll make the false promises and they'll also say, you know, they'll kind of, they won't treat it as suffering when sometimes it is. So they'll say, well, you know, this is because something greater is going to happen or, you know, always sort of putting, um, the bright side on it. And while I think that there's a genuine love there, like that's their way of showing love. I think you're right that our generation has reached a place where we don't try to just Jesus juke anymore because maybe, <laughs> yeah. Jesus juke. Right. Right. And I, I think that um, we've recognized that when someone is suffering, it doesn't help to tell them that, I don't know, to try to put a bandaid on it, you know, but instead to say, I'm so sorry, that's really hard that you want to be married and you're not like, let's just sit with that for a minute without trying to solve it without saying, oh, God has someone for you. Because, you know, as, as someone who's had single friends who've longed to be married, I've been tempted to say, well, I'm sure God has someone for you, but I'm not sure of that. 
And I have some single friends who would make incredible spouses. Um, and I don't know why they're single. Um, they're not single because they wouldn't make great spouses, but I can't promise that just because they're wonderful, that, um, this thing will happen for them because this side of heaven is not our heaven. Right. (laughs) And, um, I think all this really comes down to all this, uh, prosperity gospel within purity culture and the church. It comes down to the fact that we're so uncomfortable with suffering. Mm. We don't, I don't think we want to believe that someone who is pursuing righteousness is going to suffer in these ways that they're going to lose a child or that they won't necessarily get married or that they'll have a broken sex life. We don't want to believe that that's an option for good Christians. Um, but when we read scripture, of course, just taking the person of Jesus alone shows us that suffering is, um, a part of the Christian life. Take Job, for example, right? A righteous man who suffered so many things and not because he was being punished. So I think that it does come down to this idea that we want to believe that if we do good, we'll get good. And if you do bad, you'll get bad. Yeah. What is that? (laughs) human. I mean, I think it's very, I think it's very human to, um, want to believe that we have some control, right. Um, to believe that if that, I mean, the Bible says that you, that you reap what you sow, but we also know that that's a principle, right. Not necessarily a promise in every situation. And I think it also is very, um, heavenly minded too, that we will reap what we sow here on earth, but maybe not, maybe not here on earth, right. Maybe that reward is coming in heaven, but I think it's really hard for us as humans to accept the fact that you could do all the right things and things could still fall apart. And, you know, I mean, that's part of my story is that I, not that I did all the right things always, but I followed all the purity culture rules and, you know, met a guy in Bible college and um, just did everything that I was told, saved my first kiss for him. And then, you know, four or five years into our marriage, he decided he wasn't a Christian and just left me. And, you know, at that point, I had to step back and say, okay, there must've been something I did along the way that was wrong. Um, and I only, the only reason I felt like I had to do that is because of what the books taught me, right? That if you do good, you'll get good. So clearly somewhere along the line, it was my fault, right? Well, but when you look at scripture, that's not, (laughs) that's not the case, but that's when I really had to grapple with these purity promises versus God's word. So that process, can you talk a little bit about what walking through that process? I mean, it was definitely a process. I think it took a few years um, to sort of thaw out from some of these lies that I'd internalized. And I'll be honest too. I mean, my goodness, my Christian brothers and sisters helped me get through that time and I'm eternally grateful, but there were also Christians who really pressed into the wound by asking me questions like, what did you ignore when you were dating? What were the Mm -hmm. red flags? I even had a a magazine ask me to write a whole article on it just because they'd heard a snippet of my story. So the assumption was you are at fault in this. How can you warn people against having to go through what you went through? I had some parents, Christian parents sit down and say, and this was not wrong of them at all. It was completely understandable, but they basically said, what can we do with our daughter to make sure that she doesn't go through this? And what I ultimately had to say was nothing because I had followed the rules. You know, I tried to honor the Lord. Um, I tried to honor my parents, tried to honor um, the man I married and it still happened. And so um, I think it's just this uncomfortable truth that we have to deal with 
Um, and so for me, maybe there was some, this sounds cheesy, but maybe there was some self-forgiveness that had to take place, you know, of, of things that just realizing, okay, um, I didn't have control over the situation. So instead of blaming myself or assuming that I somehow made this happen, right. Or, or, uh, ignored wisdom or whatever that, um, just had to accept that suffering happens to saints. I'm obviously a sinner as well, but that, you know, suffering comes to believers, um, even when we are trying to follow Christ. Or it sounds like maybe it was a process of realizing that you didn't have anything to forgive yourself for. Right. Yeah. I think that's a better way to put it. The self-forgiveness of, um, right, right. Not blaming myself. And honestly, I I'd like to say that I've arrived, but I, uh, was talking to a counselor recently who said, do you realize how much you just blamed yourself? Like, and I'd been talking about my divorce and I thought, what, you know, how many years later? And I'm still subconsciously talking. I think she, I had said, oh, I was, I feel stupid or I, I, you know, I was stupid or something. And I didn't even realize that I'd said that. And so I think it is really easy when you've bought into the prosperity gospel to then assume that you're the problem when you are suffering. Now you keep making reference to the prosperity gospel. And I, and I, I think that's, I think that's precisely what it is. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it comes not the prosperity gospel comes in a variety of forms. One of which right. is if you, you know, send us your seed money, then you'll, right. you'll you, you too will have a yacht and a private airplane. That, that's yeah. sort of an extreme version. Right. But the prosperity gospel light is, um, you know, if you work hard and do the right things, then, Um, your material needs will be met. Right. And so, of course, by modus tollens, uh, if, if your material needs have not been met, then you've done something wrong. And, and, and this is exactly so, so poor people are to blame for their own problems. Right. I think a lot of Christians do believe that, right? Oh, they absolutely believe that. Yeah. And the the very people who would mock the, you know, the, the, the yachts and private planes, prosperity gospel, they, they believe some version of it themselves. Absolutely. And, this is, this, and this is exactly what you, what's operating here yep. uh, with, with purity coach. So I wonder if you might um, draw that connection. Mm, well, I, I need to make sure I don't take credit for this connection. There are multiple writers who've made this connection before me, but I would call it the purity prosperity gospel. So like you mm-hmm. said, it's a version and it's really, uh, it's just this series of promises. So the books would say that if you, were impure, um, your, your whole future life and marriage would basically be marred. So there, this is the opposite side that if you don't do good, you don't get good. Um, so they would basically say that there'd always be something missing. So, you know, there were these metaphors that we grew up with, um, of like a heart ripped in half, a paper heart ripped in half, or the crinkled rose passed around the room. Um, they'd use the terminology of like a used car, um, a chewed up stick of gum, all these metaphors were communicating that if you make any mistake with your sexuality, that you are less whole of a person, like your personhood is actually somehow, um, shattered or not as intact. And so I think that a lot of us who grew up with these teachings walked into, um, relationships with so much guilt, like, oops, I had had an impure thought or I kissed before marriage or I did this or this. And so now this person who I'm dating is going to get less of me. 
And our marriage is not going to have the same potential future as it would have if I had been perfectly pure. And so that's sort of the other side of the purity prosperity gospel is that you are, um, there's nothing you can do once you've messed up. And here's the other side of that is that victims of sexual abuse, they were not the ones being spoke. This was not directed at them, but all they could hear was this happened to me. And so I'm broken. I don't have virginity to offer my future spouse. Um, virginity was depicted as the greatest gift that a wife could give her husband. So if you have had that gift stolen from you through rape, then what are you supposed to believe about yourself? Right. And so I think that's, and that's a whole nother thing that I discuss in the book is that it was an unintended consequence of this rhetoric that victims of sexual abuse felt completely deflated. Some of them have admitted that after they were sexually abused, they realized that their purity was broken. So they felt like, well, then I guess I don't need to keep pursuing purity because it's already been broken. Almost like it's this one-time transaction. Um, And so I think that was another unintended consequence of this, of this, these teachings is that sexual uh, abuse victims and survivors were left alone in um, false guilt and left to feel less whole. And, and then there's the, and then there's the added layer that women are responsible for men's sexual purity, I guess would be one way of putting, I mean, that's certainly one thing, but it's even broader than that. Right. And so there, and, um, there's this suggestion, sometimes it's more subtle, sometimes it's less subtle Mm -hmm. that if you're assaulted as a woman, then, you know, somehow you might've been asked before, like the, the, the stuff you hear about Bathsheba. Oh, I know. Is, is bananas. It is. I had, there was one guy uh, on, <laughs> this was on Twitter. He, he accused me of doing eisegesis on the text. And he himself was arguing that Bathsheba was immodest for bathing on the roof. <laughs> I'm the one who, <laughs> I mean, just bonkers. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so sometimes it's less subtle. Sometimes it's more subtle. It's basically like, well, um, you know, you, you should have done more to protect yourself right. or you were asking for, you know, uh, right. you shouldn't wear this or that kind of clothing as if any of that has anything to do with it. Right. Very much the um, rape is preventable. I mean, there was like sections in these books on purity culture that would basically say how to um, avoid being assaulted. And then there'd be advice. And, and it's like, what about women who weren't able to avoid it? Because, you know, we don't actually have power in those situations. Um, and, and, and it's not just even in the church. I mean, our culture for years has talked to women this way, um, right? That you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's why it happened to you. You shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have been walking down that street. You shouldn't have been wearing that skirt. You shouldn't have been at that party. Um, and so, Oh man, there's just so much uh, false guilt piled on victims of sexual abuse and the church doesn't make it any better. It doesn't lift those burdens. Unfortunately, I think it just presses in the wound um, with this kind of rhetoric. And then they say that the answer to some kind of, uh, so I'm thinking in particular here of some elements in the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Mm. They say that the answer to the problem of of sexual abuse is to just get the guys to do better, <laughs> basically, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you get to individual instances, in many cases, they don't even, 
address. I mean, first of all, that that's incorrect. Just get the guys to do better. That's that's incorrect, right? But then, but then bracketing that, right? Mm-hmm. Then when you get to individual instances, you're not even you're blaming the woman anyway. Always, absolutely. Well, and you know, we some of these um, Christian leaders who you know their news stories have come out in recent years. You find out that they quote followed the Billy Graham rule. I mean, Ravi Zacharias's case is a great example, right? He says that he followed the Billy Graham rule. And yet, you know, we find out he'd been sexually abusing countless women um, using his spiritual um, authority. And so (laughs) it's interesting that the same men who say that they, you know, adhere strictly to these purity culture rules. I don't even spend time with a woman that's not my wife in any context alone. Um, they're the men who are also abusing women in secret. So I think it goes back to um, like what you said, telling men to do better. That's not the solution. Telling women to dress differently. That's not the solution. Um, Telling women not to go out past 10 PM is not the solution. I think that we have to get down to how men and women have been taught to view one another. Christian men have been taught to view themselves as um, sort of constantly on the verge of not having self-control. So even though scripture says that in the Holy Spirit, we can overcome sin, Christian men are taught that their lust is like this animal that might escape at any moment. So I don't think they trust themselves. And then they also are taught to view women as just walking temptations. And so <laughs> what I talk about in my book is that when we, when we do this, we're actually dehumanizing men and dehumanizing women in one another's eyes. And that's the first step toward opening the door to sexual abuse, right? Is dehumanization to any abuse. When we dehumanize one another, we are opening the gates to abuse. And so I'm not saying the Billy Graham rule doesn't have a place, but that is not the solution because it treats women as though that they're all um, these Jezebels. And then you're not viewing women as sisters in Christ, which is what the Bible tells us to do. We're supposed to view each other in all purity as brothers and sisters. Well, how can you do that when every time you look at someone of the opposite gender, you're thinking, oh my goodness, sexual sin, sexual sin. Right. And so I think that we've kind of, we thought that we were putting these great boundaries in place, but the boundaries we created actually dehumanized image bearers of God. And that's never a good place to start. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're a guy and you really are consistently on the verge of completely losing self-control, you, 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 you've probably, uh, there's probably a few steps back, right? That you, right. that you, <laughs> that you messed up. Yeah. Or, or you yeah. need help, right? I mean, I yeah. think. No, exa- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if someone's in a place where they legitimately cannot control um, hurting someone else, then that's, that's its own. I mean, they clearly need to have boundaries, but to treat all Christian men as though they're, well, to dehumanize them and say that they can't have self-control, that if something happens, it's not their fault because they're just so sexual and women are so not sexual. Um, it's just, it's not biblical, it's not scientific, and it doesn't help the cause. To back up a little bit here, to sort of circle back yeah. um, to, to the, uh, the notion of prosperity and that being sort of the the I there's this ideal um, that in some evangelical spaces that we would associate with purity culture there's this ideal with which we associate 
doing the right things and sort of the uh, culmination of a well-lived Christian life. That's like, you've got a single family home in the suburbs with nuclear family Mm -hmm. uh, with at least two or three kids. It's all hetero. It's all, you know, the, the man is the breadwinner and the cult of domesticity and all of that. Biological Um, kids. (laughs) What's that? Biological kids. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could say something about that and how uh, purity Mm. culture implicates that and Mm. the sort of crazy notion that that's even like what we should be aiming at. I mean, if you, if that's your life, fine. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, You know, what's interesting. So I, one of the things I've um, drawn out of this is that we are uncomfortable with suffering, but I think the other is that we're um, only comfortable with sameness. So when you think about a church where there are say a few lifelong singles, we don't know what to do with them because they can't, you can't talk to them about how they raise their kids. If they don't have children, you can't relate on um, the topic of marriage. And that makes it harder as a church, right? Um, You have to try harder. You have to actually listen and understand someone who's other than you. Same thing with those who are same-sex attracted and celibate in our churches. Um, I think a lot of times Christians just don't know what to do with them. They don't have a place. Um, And so or like one of my best friends is, is single and she's um, a foster mom. Where does she fit? She is doing the work of Christ. She is living out her faith. Um, she's an incredible person, but at times she has admitted that she doesn't feel like she's treated the same way that married women with children are even in terms of um, opportunities for ministry within the church. My husband, before he was married to his first wife who passed away from cancer, And then before he was married to me, he was a single pastor and he actually was able to um, pastor our current church as a single man, but that was pretty unusual. Um, He recognized that the church um, was doing something that other churches don't want to do. There's this idea that a single man um, or a single person cannot pastor because they somehow lack the wisdom that marriage and children bring or that they couldn't pastor a married couple as a single. Well, where did that idea come from? Can we not learn from Christ? (laughs) Right. And I I think it does all come back to the fact that we long for sameness. Um, And so anyone who doesn't fit into the typical category, which in this case is the nuclear family, um, we sort of want to fix that problem. So like the single person in your church who you don't know how to relate to, just set them up with someone and then they can, you know, and then that's sort of how we view it. Whereas maybe that single person is not interested in marriage or they are, but they're tired of being set up and they want to just be valued for who they are right now. Too often we treat those who are not in a nuclear family as though they're a problem to solve or that until they fill in the blank, they haven't arrived. And I think that's really sad for our churches because what I've found is that my same-sex attracted friends, um, my single friends, my infertile friends, my divorced friends, they have taught me so much about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we need them in our churches. Um, And I say that as someone who's been divorced and has struggled with infertility, I can't say I've experienced all of it, but we, we need other, we need the other in the church and sameness is not good for us. And so I, I really do think that that's one of the reasons that we kind of stick to this, you know, have married, get married, have children is that it just makes us feel better because we can relate more. 
Yeah. Yeah. So so just for the just for the sake of simplifying what's at stake, right? Just just for the sake of simplicity, let's let's yeah. suppose that we we assume a totally conventional biblical sexual ethic with mm. respect to same-sex attraction, right? right. I, I cannot, assuming the totally conventional view, right? right. right. I, I cannot even begin to figure out what, what the aversion is, what, mm. where the criticism comes from with respect to Christians who experience same-sex attraction and choose celibacy. Right. How on earth could you, could you, I mean, that, that's, that's, um, I mean, that's one of the noblest things I can, I can imagine. I agree. Because you say, you know, you know what? I cannot reconcile my my sexual, my my sexual attraction. Right. uh, With my understanding of my faith. And so I choose my faith and I'm just going to be celibate. Who, where, where? where do you get the idea that that's that there's that that's something that should be criticized? I mean, if anything, you should you should try to learn from that person. Right. I I think your response is the right one, being incredulous, and yet I can I mean I can shed some light on what <laughs> it's horrible, but there is a a section of believers who actually thinks that in in order to be fully obedient to Christ, you have to become heterosexual. So like, I remember Jackie Hill Perry wrote the book, Gay Girl, Good God. And she said, the call to, to the cross is not a call to heterosexuality. You know, we all have the same call. We, we follow, we follow the scripture and we lay down our lives and it looks different for each of us. But she acknowledged that she doesn't have to suddenly never struggle with same sex attraction to be a Christian. And it, it is, it is crazy to me, but there are so many believers who actually think that if you struggle with same sex attraction, um, that you are somehow in sin, which what they're really saying is that temptation is a sin, which yeah. what they're really saying is that Jesus was a sinner. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, cra- it's absolutely crazy. It, it's, it's unbiblical. It's unloving. And as you pointed out, we're missing an opportunity to learn from these incredible believers. Yeah. So that, that's what we lose. We lose the chance to learn from someone who is truly laying their life down for Christ, who is saying, I'm going to give up the chance to have um, a romantic relationship with someone because of what I see in scripture. I mean, my goodness, what an incredible um, act of faith that is. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that Christians are uncomfortable with it, but that's one of them. And it's a completely ridiculous, unloving, um, unbiblical response. But sadly, I know quite a few believers who feel that way. It's almost like you have to um, convert someone, not just to Christianity, but to heterosexuality. Can you imagine the burden that we place on the gay community by saying you can only be a Christian if you stop having these feelings? Okay, well then they're just going to walk away. Yeah, we have failed. We have failed so much in this area. It's really heartbreaking. It seems. Can you hear my dog barking in the background? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. Once he stops, he'll stop. <laughs> We've got an Australian cattle dog. They're very intelligent, but when but they they try to do a little bit too much thinking on their own. You know what I mean, right? He's convinced there's a problem, and so that's yeah. It's it. There's this. I, I think one through line here is just a general discomfort with discomfort, a general discomfort right, with exactly. 
with uh, suffering or even self-denial. Wow, that, yes, that's a really, that's another side of this, right? That we can't imagine, <laughs> I think heterosexual Christians can't imagine a life without sex, maybe, is the, is the problem, right? We think that, um, we think that someone can't have a full life without being married and having sex and having children. And so the idea that a same-sex attracted Christian would choose celibacy doesn't fit into uh, we want them to be um, converted to heterosexuality so they can get married and have sex, right? I mean, isn't that kind yeah. of, which is such a strange thing. Again, if we look back at church history, my husband and I were just talking about this, that throughout Christianity, there have been places in the church for the celibate. Like there have been places of honor for the celibate. And where, where in evangelicalism do we have a space for people like that? Do we? Not that uh, I know. No, no. Right. It's, it's almost as if they, they think that um, it was like, it must have been part of Christ's plan to like get married at some point. But I guess the whole crucifixion thing, like the way. Cut, cut his plans short, maybe. <laughs> I wonder, yeah. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I think if you draw out the natural conclusion to that thinking, then that's, that is what they would believe. Um, but I think that's so, that's a great point you made. Discomfort with discomfort. We don't want to believe that we truly have to suffer. Uh, we don't want to be uncomfortable in church. We don't want to be uncomfortable in our relationships and have to deal with, say, a small group where someone comes in and their husband just left them or their wife just left them. Uh, we don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with someone who says, I've been single for 50 years and want to be married. We don't know. So we say, okay, well, we'll fix this by setting you up with our cousin. But what if we just need to sit with them in the loneliness that they're feeling and say, your loneliness is legitimate. You can cry out to the Lord using the Psalms and you're not a problem to fix. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. And, and, and the, um, the easy answers are sort of like, you know, well, you're going through this so you can help other people that are going through this always right? yep. <laughs> and it's it's like okay i just have a quick meta question here right like um couldn't just none of us go through it, right that's the point wouldn't that be nice it's, almost, it, it's a part of this whole approach to to um christian life that sort of makes you wonder why we you know the moment you become a believer you're not just sort of raptured to heaven <laughs> right. right it's like it, it's right. it's like the um the, the point of remaining here on earth mm. uh, once you enter into a, a relationship with Christ is what? I mean, to, to, to carve out a comfortable spot to await the eschaton. I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> what, 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 what is it about? It, I mean, it seems as though part of the point of Christians in the church mm. is to live in solidarity with people who are afflicted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And not to um, find a cabin in the woods to stay in until the end of the world. Hi. But I mean, we see that kind of thinking in Christians. Our, our Christian response to any kind of persecution is to go somewhere where it won't happen. <laughs> our, our response to suffering is often to pull back. Oh, I don't know. There's just, hmm, got me thinking. <laughs> yeah. What do you... What do you think about, uh, I mean, all of this comes up against uh, just ways in which 
American evangelicals in predominantly white yes, spaces absolutely um, have just got the opposite of right. of the truth in mind. Uh, they're they see Christianity as a special interest group politically that's about seeking power. Um, mm-hmm. They see living a Christian life as being oriented toward uh, material comfort. Right. And, and um, you know, all of the things that we've been uh, discussing that are held out as an ideal. Right. Um, what do you make of all this? I find it, I, when it dawned on me a few years ago, I mean, like I, I've been thinking for some time about, you know, well, there's this thing and there's this thing that the church is getting wrong and there's this thing. And then a few years ago, I just sort of sat back and I was like, what? Okay. These aren't isolated areas. Right. I mean, it's, it's, and it was sort of, I don't know what it was eerie. I don't don't know what, how to describe it really, but it just shocking. I mean, it was like, to what extent am I just looking at like, you know, a, a, a false version of Christianity through and through Right. I mean, we're definitely seeing more than just a, we're seeing a pattern um, in the last few years and it's super disturbing. Um, You know, what it makes me wonder is how are we reading the New Testament? And I mean, I see my husband, I joke around um, in our adult Sunday school class, which is full of wonderful believers, but we always joke around that every time he brings up the fact that Jesus said to turn the other cheek, that every single person in the room finds a way to work around it. I'm sure including ourselves, you know, just, well, it can't mean that it, it has to mean this. And if, if someone's attacking your family or if someone is mean to you or slandering you, or if you're being persecuted by the government, then you don't have to wear the mask, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's just funny how I, I think it must be a way that we are um, in community interpreting the New Testament differently. Because mm, mm. it's got to be consistent with the Second Amendment, whatever it is. <laughs> Well, and so I was a Christian school teacher for about 10 years. And one time in class, I was talking to my high schoolers and one of them actually said um, that the second amendment was in scripture and they actually had confused. This is real. Um, They actually believed that it had come from scripture. That's where we got it. Um, And that, so I'm from California and I was teaching in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was just shocked. I, I could not believe. And other students were nodding their heads these were like 17 year olds. And I just thought what's going on. Um, and so I, I do think, I mean, we've seen this rise in Christian nationalism and uh, more of a devotion to American ideals than the teachings of Christ. And I think the hardest part for me is like, first of all, it's in me too. And so I need to be humble enough to see that, but also where do we start? Because the second you try to approach this with other Christians, you're sort of accused of being anti-patriotic, right? Um, and, and so how do we even, how do we as Christians go about flipping the script so that our Christianity is actually true? Um, and I don't know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel very discouraged and helpless as to what the next steps are because it feels like there's a mass blindness going on. And um, I don't know, it's dividing families, it's dividing churches and and this last year, I think, has really brought that out in ways that have been really, just really sad. Yeah, I, I so I've been, uh, I've been thinking of, about the sort of meta narrative of all this for 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 a few years. Yeah. And um, 
some a lot of the con the conversations on this podcast with people I'm talking to end up coming around back around to this uh, idea, and I think the, the the purity culture conversation is totally consistent with this. Um, I think that the divide, as far as I can tell, the divide in contemporary American evangelicalism is between those who believe that certain kinds of social hierarchy mm. are an expression of God's design mm. versus, versus those who think that these kinds of social hierarchy are an expression of human iniquity. Right. That's, I think that's very well said, but there's so much in that. Um, oh my goodness. I just, as you were, as you were describing that, I was thinking of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Mm. Where does that fit in to this idea <laughs> of <laughs> social hierarchy is, is more spiritual? The, the, the authority and submission crowd. Right. I don't, so I grew up in the SBC. Okay. And uh, from a pastor's family, I hung out around seminaries. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, like, I know a bunch of these people. Or I did, you know, as a, as, a, right. as a young person. And then, you know, I, you know how it is. You went to grad school. I went away to grad school. It's like in my world, you know. And then I kind of circled back uh, when I got on Twitter a couple of years ago. And I thought, what? I did, like, I'm not, mis I, I don't, I'm not misremembering. All of this was there, of course. But it's become, it seems to have become more accentuated. And you've got these theologians running around talking constantly about authority and submission as yeah. though as though that is the point of anything right a submission to human authority right <laughs> and that's how they read the entire bible I, yeah. I, I don't i don't see how we fix any of this as long as that's going on because that's that's just i mean i don't know how to put it that's completely wrong nothing about that is correct and it's and it's scary it's scary the emphasis that's being put on it um i mean you think about how the disciples were confused by jesus because he didn't um, go up against the government. Right. And it's like, if we look at the life of Christ, I think we see the opposite of what we're seeing on conservative Twitter. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, he, they were just, they were so confused that he didn't want to fight the fight, fight the culture, um, you know, take on the Romans and, um, or, or even that he didn't come wielding a sword and, um, even made them put away their swords. I mean, I think that it's just such a contrast. And again, it brings me back to what, what Bible are we reading in churches today? What sermons and interpretations are we using? How is it that we can read the New Testament as a church and still be preaching these false gospels? I don't know. I, I mean, it, I don't have an answer to it. It's just, it's my question that just reverberating in my head. What, what kind of gospel are we actually reading? And maybe it's just that we're going to church for two hours and then watching Fox news the rest of the week. Mm. Maybe that's, that's what that's where we're being discipled. Mm -hmm. or, or, I mean, I don't want to just pick on conservatives. I mean, whatever news outlet or, you know, whatever um, we're filling our heads with it's contradicting and it's, it's catechizing us um, instead of scripture. Yeah. I, I agree completely. I think, I think there's, there's one sort of uh, per perhaps point where we can differentiate, right? So if I'm watching a particular news network, mm -hmm. um, I'm perfectly capable of saying like, 
okay, what that person just said is like editorializing, right? Or that reflects their, their view. I mean, this is basic media literacy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas if I'm watching some other news outlet and the information that's being conveyed has no basis in fact. Right. 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 Um, I can't, there, there's like, there's either the basic factual substructure with some editorializing on top that I can dismiss right. or, or it's just fantasy land. The entire story is false, but is, yeah. No, I think you're right. So, I mean, it's not all equal. You, you are right about that. Um, and I think we do need to, we probably need to be bolder in addressing that. It's just that we all know our, you know, loved ones that, and, and people in our churches that it would really offend. Um, and so then again, my question is, how do we go about this? Because I know in my own heart that, you know, these things are in my own heart too, and I'm not like superior but I also, I see the Christian nationalism and I see what a threat it is. What do those of us who see that threat do? I, I'm, I, I'm constantly wrestling with the question, like, at what point do we start? There's, there, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be a point at which we, we just start calling false teachers what they are. Right. And I think we're reluctant to do this. Of course, they're not reluctant to call anyone false teacher. Well, that's what I was right? going to say. That, you know, if you grew up in the conservative church, um, I went to uh, John MacArthur's uh, Bible college as a 18-year-old. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you were getting <laughs> straight. Okay. Usually don't tell people that, but yes. Um, but I mean, so that crowd loves to call out false teachers. It's like a favorite pastime. And so... It is interesting to think about that in regards to this, that may maybe you're right. Maybe it's about saying, okay, we really do need to start warning people against false teaching and false teachers. It's, that's always a struggle for me because I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think there's so much more nuance to, to certain theologians and teachers than, you know, we, we are kind of in the cancel culture, right? On both sides. Yeah. And so, and I don't think that does us a lot of good because what it does is, um, it just squelches discernment, right? So on one hand, you don't want someone listening to a false news source, but on the other hand, if you just cancel it all together, what have they learned? They haven't necessarily learned how to be discerning and how to know that if the next person is true or false. And so um, there has to be something in between the, the cancel culture and just um, absorbing these things without any discernment. And so maybe it comes down to how do we teach discernment? And this is, this, okay, good. I think you're, I think that's totally correct. And this is when I get the most despondent, uh, right? Because, because um, you've got a lot of folks in the camp we're talking about are def they're, they're pushing to defund education and they're pushing and they're pushing to send kids to schools where they're going to read like a back of books and, and, and they come out thinking that Tom, Thomas Jefferson was a, was like a born again evangelical Christian. I know that's true. Yep. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I can say that because I've taught in schools that use a Becca and that is, and that is what I thought about Thomas Jefferson. Um, and not because of my parents, they corrected that, but the books, the, the um, curriculum uh, and Columbus was a, a hero until I realized what he'd actually done. So, I mean, you know, you're right. I, I think it, it's hard. These questions um, do tend to make me feel very heavy and discouraged because I don't see clear answers right now. And I know that as Christians, not to Jesus juke myself, but I know as Christians, we do need to pray for wisdom, right? Like I need to say, God, how, how teach us what it looks like to be faithful in this culture, in this cultural climate. Because what I, what I see happen is if I try to address this at all with people, I know 
it turns into an argument and it's not, it's not helpful. And it, it becomes very combative very quickly. And that's not when I'm spiritually at my best <laughs> is when someone's trying to argue with me because I'm a sinner and then can engage just on the same level or worse. And so I struggle to know even where to start with these conversations. Um, and I, I feel bad for your listeners in the sense that I don't have any answers for them with this, just, just sort of a plea to God for wisdom. So what gives you hope? Hmm. The Holy Spirit does give me hope. I, I do believe what scripture says that he is alive in his, in his children. And I think that while each of our spiritual journeys is at a different pace and takes different twists and turns that we can trust that he is at work. Um, and we have seen in church history before, um, blind eyes open, we've seen mass revival, you know, in the past. And so, um, that gives me hope and yeah, I think I would say the Holy spirit is what's giving me hope right now. What about you? What gives me hope? Um, I'm, I'll ask the questions here. <laughs> no. Am I not allowed to do that? No, 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 no. You said it makes you despondent. And so just, I'm genuinely curious as, you know, a sister in Christ, like what, what do you do when you get despondent? Because I see you fighting some of this on Twitter and I think you're doing a really good job, especially when it comes to um, discussions about race. Um, but how do you, how do you keep from getting despondent? Yeah. So, so, so when I'm the most in inclined toward despondency would be when we start, as I said, I agree with you completely. It comes down to sort of, uh, a lot of it comes down to teaching discernment. And then when I start to say, well, how, how are we going to do that given the situation? Right. Um, then I, I think what I, that's, that's where I have to say, you know what? Um, I, I'm not the, I'm not the, I'm thinking of, uh, Christ and culture. I, I, t I try to shy away from war metaphor, but this is what Niebuhr says, right? So he, he like, I'm not the general, mm. right? Yep. Um, and I, I know, I know which part of the fight I'm, I'm called to. Right. And, um, like I, I, like in my, in my bones, I know it. Yeah. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to that until I receive, you know, further instruction about where else to go and what else to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as how, how we're going to em emerge from the, the mass, I, I don't pretend to know. Yeah. But and I, it's not I, for me to know. Right. I, but I think, I think your response is actually really encouraging because it goes back to this idea that we're supposed to be faithful today. And each of us, you know, I hear I'm writing this book on purity culture. Not everyone should be doing that. Um, you know, I, I think that we all do have a calling. My husband is called to pastor a small town church in Iowa. We all have a calling from God um, and kind of have a place in this fight. And, and I think that actually takes some of the overwhelming nature of this and breaks it down to, okay, we don't have to fix everything. We're not Jesus, um, but we can each do our part and, mm -hmm. and then Pray. So I, I find that I find your response really encouraging. And I, I think I'm going to mull that over for the next few days. Yeah. Well, you, 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 I, you put it in a much more beautiful way than my, than my clumsy war metaphor, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, what, what, what should I have asked that I haven't asked or what else would you, would you like to add or. 
I don't know. I like that this conversation um, went beyond just purity culture books because as the, the last year and a half that I've been talking about the book, I think the conversation has changed. And so I actually appreciate that maybe we got more to the root of some of these things and the way that purity culture teachings are actually connected to larger problems um, in the church. It's not just the way we talk about sexuality. That's just one manifestation of this, you know, kind of prosperity, discomfort with discomfort, like you said, and all that that leads to. I mean, we could, we don't need to talk about COVID, but we could talk about how the discomfort with discomfort has impacted this last year for Christians mm. and how just how um, destructive that's been to relationships, the way that we've um, been so <laughs> uncomfortable with suffering, um, the different ways we've handled that. So actually, I, I appreciate this conversation because it went beyond you know, what I normally talk about and made me think about the ways that it connects to a larger conversation. So, um, no, I can't think of anything else. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Absolutely. Uh, it's been, been delightful. Uh, my best to Evan. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> Melissa sends her best. She was very envious that I, that I got to have a conversation. You have an amazing wife. I'd love to meet you guys in person someday. We'll have to make that happen. That would be great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. Sure, thank you. All right, bye. All right, bye.